Hello. Today I'm re-airing one of the earliest Giving Venture episodes. July has pulled me and the team in a number of different directions, so I hope you'll indulge us a brief break in original content. Plus, for many of you, this may still be original content. If you haven't been listening since the beginning, particularly those of you who've recently joined us from the Ricochet Network and we welcome you, then you probably missed this show I'm going to share with you today. It was our fourth episode, and swung a bit away from the policy topics and more towards liberty-minded ideas that are at play in marriage and family issues. A lot has happened with these three groups since we aired this episode in October, so at the end, I offer a new close to give you a few updates on their activities. Thank you for listening, and now on with the show. Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor-advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learn with you, so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. Today we're talking all things family. Perhaps I should have released this closer to Thanksgiving with that holiday's focus on family togetherness, though surely some of you think that a drop date close to Halloween is plenty appropriate. You know, Leo Tolstoy opens his great book, Anna Karenina, with the famous line, Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Maybe there's some truth to this. Organizations such as the Archbridge Institute and Georgia Center for Opportunity, which you may have heard in our first episode, often point to a theory known as the success sequence. Perhaps you've heard of it. The idea, which first came out of Brookings Institute, suggests that those who get at least a high school degree then get gainful employment and experience, then marry, all before having children, and in that order, are not poor by the time they reach their prime young adult years. And that, at least, is one way to measure a happy family. Now, for some listening, just mentioning the issue of family, or as you'll hear, a splash of religion as well, may make you squirm. Perhaps you've already pigeonholed this discussion of family as an issue for social conservatives, but I want to make the case to you that there is a broader social good to recognizing and encouraging strong families. I don't mean this in a dogmatic, everyone needs to be part of a traditional family way, but study after study shows that where families are strong, communities and our freedoms are strong as well. But don't take my word for it. We have three great guests today to talk about the work being done to strengthen families, protect children, and nurture new respect for dads. And even if families, foster care, and fatherhood aren't important pieces of your philanthropy, you will find some interesting tidbits in here and some great reasons to be optimistic. Let's get started. Since we're talking family, let's start at the core, and that's marriage. Over the past several decades, we've seen a major decline in marriage rates. We've concurrently seen major drops in church participation, and with more people, especially in the younger generation, declaring themselves religious nuns, as in no affiliation to a faith or denomination tradition. J.P. DeGantz argues that this dual decline is no coincidence, and with his organization, Communio, he aims to increase both marriage and church engagement in the U.S. by helping churches leverage data to understand the communities and the strategic ways that churches can be involved in building marriage ministries. So 
there's so many places we could start, JP, but maybe we start here. With Communio, is the big goal to strengthen marriage and you leverage churches to do that? Or is it to build up religious affiliation and you leverage marriage ministry to do that? Uh, great question. U- ultimately, the goal is both. It's a double bottom line, Peter. Y- you, the, we know from the social science, uh, both are in- incredibly important for a healthy and flourishing free society, social capital, and the collapse of social capital is closely associated with increases in poverty, uh, lower levels of upward mobility, and, uh, and the two strongest parts of social capital are strong marriages, strong families, and then a connection to a house of worship. And so we see, certainly, we are believing Christians and, and, and know that an act of faith in Jesus is a, is, has a huge positive impact on the individual on the family and on the society. And so we see that as a, a great end. But then we also know that, that marriage itself is, is probably the, the world's greatest poverty-fighting institution. And Communio isn't really a customer-facing brand. It's more uh, of a nonprofit version of a business-to-business company, right? So how does that work? And, and where are you working? That's right. We, we describe ourselves as a nonprofit that consults with churches. Okay? And, and uh, we have a, a framework, a model that we consult with them on. We call it a data-informed, full-circle relationship ministry, and that is using data in the same way that, say, a political campaign might use data. We, uh, we run surveys with our church clients. We use consumer product data and modeling to understand risk areas, and we use that same data to do targeted outreach on behalf of churches. And then we've built an entire wraparound set of marketing ser- support services for churches to do uh, the kind of effective marketing evangelization into a community to invite those in who most need relationship ministry. And then by full circle relationship ministry, it means applying ministry best practices in every stage of relationships, knowing that a great marriage starts years before the wedding day. And so we work with churches to think through how they do this effectively with singles, help singles build healthy relationships and, and build a healthy cadence for forming a healthy relationship. And so, so ultimately, one of our clients would hire us and uh, usually a, a funder will, uh, will frequently sponsor us or, or pro- provide a scholarship to reduce those fees. And then we work with that church to, to implement our model. And are you doing that nationwide? Yeah, great question. No, we, we, right now we've, we have 100 church clients uh, spread out in different parts of the country. Uh, we have a, a new statewide initiative going on in Montana. Uh, we've got a major uh, metro area initiative in, in Denver, uh, then in the Permian Basin, Midland and Odessa, a large community initiative in Fort Worth. Then we have individual church clients in Boston, uh, several in Boston, starting up in Pittsburgh, uh, Atlanta, New Orleans, and, uh, and then Orange County in Southern California. Are those citywide initiatives? Because I knew about a few of those, but some of those are new to me. Yeah, so, so four of those, the first four were, are citywide initiatives. The others are, are places where we're working to build a local network of churches uh, so they're more of an organic growth over time into a citywide initiative. Uh, but it would be starting in, uh, first with a beachhead where, where we partner with a couple leading churches in a market. So you've been at this for a little while, started in the Philanthropy Roundtable as a project and spun off into its own thing a few years ago. And these goals aren't just these, wouldn't it be great kind of goals, these pie in the sky goals. You've actually 
done the the work, done the on the ground research and everything to show that you actually can move the needle on some of this stuff. Tell us about the Jacksonville experiment. Yeah, you know, the biggest threat to this issue area is a feeling that we have a lack of agency, that you can't do something about these intractable issues, like the decline of, of marriage and the decline of faith. And so uh, we did a big pilot experiment in Jacksonville, Florida, worked with more than 50 churches, Baptist churches, Catholic parishes, uh, community Bible churches of different sorts. And we moved over a three-year period, 58,912 folks through four-hour or longer couples relationship education. We saturated the market with digital outreach, targeting those most at risk for divorce in the community. And over a three-year period, the divorce rate dropped 24%. And uh, we had independent research done uh, to evaluate the work in that, in that market. The conclusion from the social scientists was that there was no other explanation for the decline of that 24% decline other than our our intervention in the market. And so we recognize that churches can be the change agent within the community. And the, there's a huge opportunity here, Peter. I know from a business perspective, folks always want to find areas where there's high leverage. 85% of all churches report spending no money every year on marriage and relationship ministry. And if you think about it, there's hundreds of millions of dollars in unleveraged brick and mortar assets in every town and every community in America. There's hundreds of millions of dollars of human resources in terms of in terms of staff at churches and volunteers who can be leveraged. And so our vision is to make it normative again that a majority of kids grow up with constantly married parents. That's what we want to see happen over the next 10 years. We think the that's a huge boulder that you're trying to move. When you you want to move a big boulder, you got to you got to have a, a big fulcrum and a long lever. And we think the church is that fulcrum that, that we can use to move it. And the lever is our, is our strategic framework uh, to produce that change. Have you done any follow-up research on the Jacksonville experiment? So we're a few years out from it now. Have yeah. those been sustained gains? Yeah, yes, the, it, it was. Uh, the divorce rate continued to decline in 2019 after we stopped our work. And then, and then uh, of course, in 2020, the divorce rate collapsed everywhere because courthouses were closed. So in terms of uh, staying power in 2019, that, that trend continued. We had trained a, a lot of uh, marriage mentors and set up a lot of marriage ministries at the church level uh, as a result of that. And we had a phenomenal partner in Live the Life Ministries uh, who, who uh, continues to, uh, to engage in the local community with churches. So for donors who would love to see something like this in their community, what's the path for them doing that? Or are you just focused on those particular markets you've already mentioned? How can people be engaged in this? Yeah, so there's a few different ways uh, a funder could get involved. One is we set up and we're working to set up what we're now calling church networks, where we can get and identify funders to sponsor groups of seven churches to apply our model. And then once you get seven churches, it provides the capital that uh, and revenue that you're able to uh, support and staff those churches and then grow organically in the market up to a citywide initiative. We also have the ability to do consulting uh, and work directly with individual churches, which is what we're doing uh, with, uh, with client churches in, say, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Boston, Atlanta. Uh, each, of the, each of our client churches gets a white glove service. Those are the, the, two, the two big areas 
uh, that a, a, a funder could get involved. Last is we are about to launch a online classroom, sort of a, a larger scale model with churches. We call it community outreach. In, in that situation, a church uh, at $3,600 a year is able to get access to our classroom and uh, some, some level of online support from our national team. That's great. And you also just published a book, right, in-game, to kind of summarize a lot of this. So people can also access that and read through the methodology, read the dreary statistics, and uh, and also the more optimistic story of, of what's ahead. Yeah, no, thanks for mentioning that. It, there's a lot that has been written about the collapse of marriage, right? Whether that's Charles Murray's Coming Apart, uh, books like Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam, or great books like... Um, Alienated in America, written by Tim Carney. What uh, what makes Endgame different is, in addition to diagnosing what's going on and, and really illustrating to churches that the collapse of, of Christianity is entirely the cause of the collapse of marriage, that uh, a millennial and a, baby, uh, and a baby boomer is just as likely to go to church every week if I know one thing about both people, and that is if a baby boomer and a millennial grew up in a home that, with constantly married parents, there's, there's almost no difference in how frequently they go to church which that means when we talk to church leaders is the entire story of the last 60 years of the collapse of faith is really just the story of the collapse of marriage. Then we go into what churches can tangibly do about it. What's an action plan that's been tested and proven effective at the individual church level. And so then we, we unpack that in the book and, and make it easy for a, for a pastor to, to both strategize and implement. That's great. Well, JP DeGantz, Communio, uh, wish you well and appreciate you talking to us. Hey, thanks, Peter. The foster care system has always seemed to be something to keep out of my mind because putting it into my mind just could be a little too much emotionally. I have several friends who've taken in foster children, sometimes for a week, sometimes for much longer, and I never fail to be amazed at their willingness to take these kids in, especially as so many of them have issues uh, and so many of these parents have biological children of their own. Darcy Olson is one of these resilient foster parents. She's also an incredible social entrepreneur. Many may know Darcy from her years leading the Goldwater Institute in Arizona, which innovated right-to-try legislation and education savings accounts. But three years ago, she put her full energy into a new mission on improving America's foster care system, founding Gen Justice. So, Darcy, before we get into the what of Gen Justice, tell us about the why. Why do you, why do so many others choose this foster care route uh, to be foster parents? And why is the foster care system necessary in the first place? I think of it this way. For those of us who spend our lives devoted to the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, and making sure that all of those opportunities exist for all of the right reasons, um, that's why I started Gen Justice, because There's an area in this country, and it's where you come to these abused and abandoned children, uh, where those opportunities don't exist in the same way, where their rights are second class, um, where they don't have the same constitutional rights that that we know belong to all Americans. And when I saw that gap, I wanted to step in and fill it. But more to the point, just getting right focused on the children themselves, people would say, I ended up taking in 10 infants, and each time people would say, I can't believe you're doing this. Like, that just seems, it's, it's like crazy. Like, who would do that? And I'd say, well, you know, if someone left a baby on your doorstep in a basket, would you just walk past? I mean, no one would do that. And these children can't get to us. But when we know about them, we can get to them. 
And uh, right now there are so many children coming into the system. We're talking about a half million a year, largely because of very severe uh, drug use in their homes and uh, life endangerment. And so um, the system that they enter, you know, they're between a rock and a hard place, abuse and neglect at home, and then a government system, which at its very best is still not gonna function that well. And Gen Justice is in there to strengthen the laws around those kids to protect their their lives and their liberty interests and their right to family. Yeah, let's talk about what you do on a day to day. I mean, how do you do that? How do you start addressing some of these inadequacies in the foster care system? The first thing to recognize is that the foster care system is simply a system of laws. That's that's all it is. And so the better the laws, the more protected children will be, the more the rights of families will be respected. So we, we're drilling down in that area. We work on three levels, micro, where we actually take pro bono cases. These child victims don't have attorneys. I mean, the criminally accused always have a constitutional right to an attorney. Parents have uh, state rights to states' rights to attorneys. But the victims themselves actually don't. And so we we provide that pro bono to these victims so that any rights they do have can at least be enforced. And then on a macro level, we're working on statutory reforms, such as making sure children have an adequate legal defense um, and protection. So if they're supposed to go home, they get home. If they need to be adopted, they get adopted. And we know kids with attorneys get families or go home three times faster than those who don't have them. So obviously that makes a big deal. And then on a super macro level, we're working on enforcing constitutional rights for these child victims. And just a quick anecdote, Peter, I was in a hearing once for one of my babies that had been abused and abandoned, who was a year old, and it was a termination proceeding of parental rights. And the judge opened by saying, I'd like to remind everyone in the courtroom today that mom's rights are constitutional and babies are only statutory. Let's begin. So what that means is that the right to parent, and that's very important, is constitutional to direct the upbringing of your children and all of those things. But a child who's been abused doesn't have the same constitutional right, for instance, to bodily integrity. So we allow criminal actions against children that we would never allow you to me or me to you. And so we want to obviously protect good parents and all of their rights and keep those intact. But when you have someone who rapes their own child, uh, we need to protect the children in those cases. And so that's where we are threading that needle and working on those nuances so that children too have the right to liberty and to their own lives and to their own self-interest. And that should be what it's about. I mean, spreading spreading liberty across the board. It's it's everyone. So that that's amazing. How what does success look like in this? I mean, where have you had some wins? How do you how do you grow? How do you how do you what would put you out of business? <laughs> We'd love to go out of. <laughs> I think a change in the nature of humanity would put us completely out of business. Uh, but there are a number of successes that we've had for children across country. We've had over a dozen reforms become law, nearly all with unanimity. Most of the reforms that are required don't cost a lot of money. It's just about working smarter or faster or recognizing the needs. So I'll give you one for instance. 20,000 kids go missing from foster care every year. They 
they go missing, they are not recovered. And the FBI tells us that these are the kids that constitute the vast majority of trafficked kids in the United States. Now, searches are not mandatory, and in many cases, there are no searches at all for these children because they don't have families to push for the searches. So we worked with our local agency and our law enforcement and said, what do you need to find these children? They, you know, predators know no one's looking for them, and that's why these are the kids who are taken. And they said the number one thing we're missing is a picture ID because they don't have parents to snap their pictures just kind of a heartbreaking thought when you look down at your phone and you see so many uh, pictures of your own children. Yeah, wow. So now they all get a free photo ID at the touch of the button. If a child goes missing, it's uploaded into the police systems. They can see the picture and within a couple of hours, they can be the search. They can do the search and they can recover these children. Um, and now it's just, you know, it's just one small reform, but it will save the lives of many children. So knowing where the holes are, where these children are preyed on, uh, where they fall through the cracks, and then building up a system around them because they don't have a family to do that job. We need to make sure that the system of laws is there to protect them until they reach adulthood. That's amazing. And it's amazing that such a small, seemingly small win can really have such an outsized impact, but it takes being a bit removed from those overburdened social workers and case managers and to, to kind of see that. I think it's incredible you're out there doing that. What we've seen in the system, I think you're right, is that it's, it's like an emergency room. The immediate needs of children are so great. People want to provide the shoes, the clothes, the homes, and we need all of those things. But at the same time, they, they need not just backpacks, but you know backpacks of legal protections and rights that will surround them and go with them and protect them. So there's some really great groups out there, kind of newer groups, who are tackling this on the service level, but doing it outside of government. Groups like Better Together, the Forgotten Initiative, Safe Families. How does your group, which is more on the policy side, interplay with groups like that? So those groups are very important and, and, and have come to fill a gap in civil society. So they are really trying, when there's any chance of preserving the, the parent-child relationship. Maybe mom just needs rehab. Maybe it's her first baby. She needs 30 days and someone needs to watch the kids. Safe families and some of these programs will set that up or they'll get you a car to, you know, to, to get to work or they can help you with childcare. For children where the family cannot be preserved, um, in these cases of abandonment, of severe and ongoing drug use for 10, 15 or more years, sometimes severe mental illness, those children, you know, we can't handle that on the civil society side because it would be kidnapping, right? So those children have to go through foster care. They need to either be adopted by relatives, so we have laws expediting the search for relatives so they'll be found right away, or they need to be adopted by families outside of their own biological families like mine. Uh, we, you know, and that system of laws is there for reason to protect those children who do need a change in family structure to, in order to survive. That, that's what foster care is about. So I love those organizations who are helping on the edges of families living on the edge and, and sort of the margins. And it's a wonderful help. But when you're talking about the, the criminal element that exists, that's where you need, you need gen justice and you need 
laws um, to protect those kids and ensure their rights to family. Well, Darcy, you and Gen Justice are doing amazing stuff and seem to be doing just that. So we wish you the best of luck as you plow forward. Thank you. We just, we appreciate you and all of those who are coming on board to help these kids so much. Thank you. As a brief aside, we at Donors Trust regularly hear from folks who think all of our grant making goes to public policy organizations. While a good chunk certainly does, our clients give tens of millions each year to churches and synagogues, medical charities, human services, civic institutions, and the arts. It isn't that we think policy is the only way to solve these many problems out there. Rather, we think there is an outsized role for civil society, and therefore philanthropy, to play as opposed to waiting for government. I love seeing the diversity of interest Donors Trust clients support. If you go to DonorsTrust.org, you'll find a link to download a free donor prospectus. Inside is a sampling of the wide variety of groups donors support with their Donors Trust Donor Advised Fund. That roster includes all the groups you're hearing from on the podcast. And so with that, let's get back to it. Our next guest is a storyteller. John Popola is CEO and Chief Creative Officer for Emergent Order Foundation. The foundation, as well as its for-profit company, Emergent Order, has been behind a number of the most creative pieces of persuasive storytelling to advance the stories of liberty that you've seen in the past decade. These include the Hayek vs. Keynes rap videos, Independent Institute's LoveGov series, the Arthur Brooks documentary called The Pursuit, and so many other things. But this isn't an episode on creative storytelling, now is it? Well, John, like me and like many of you listening, is also a dad, and he's a strong proponent of fatherhood. And as a special project of the Emergent Order Foundation, John is building out a new initiative to strengthen the idea of fatherhood in this country. So, John, let's start at the top. Why is a storytelling company making the special case for fatherhood? You know, this project, this initiative began as another feature film, which was focused on the reasons why our kids have become so fragile and so adverse to challenge, to intellectual challenge. You know, I was inspired partly by The Coddling of the American Mind, the book by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff, and partly by the own, my own experiences watching my son's peers grapple with anxiety levels that I just didn't experience as a kid and didn't know many people who experienced when I was a kid. And so that started down a journey of trying to understand what's happening with our kids and how does it lead through school and ultimately into the streets and into the HR departments and into our politics? And one of the things that the calling of the American mind sort of misses is that this rise of anxiety, this rise of sort of this mentality of overprotection and safetyism, and then it's kind of macroeconomic outcome, which is this demand for socialism, social safety nets, even communism. There's been polls saying young people are favorable towards not just socialism, but in some cases even communism. That also correlates with the collapse of fatherhood in the United States. And so as we thought about how can we make the biggest impact with our storytelling and what audience is most in need of being lifted up through the power of heroic storytelling, it just became clear to us, and really it was actually my wife's idea, that we are dads. I'm a dad. Many of the members of the team are dads. Dads need support. They need celebration. 
Um, they need a place to turn where they're not being scolded by the culture and where they can see themselves as heroes who can help save the country. And so that's what we're trying to do with the, with the channel, which uh, we're calling Dad Saves America, with, which, which has a little bit of a wink in it. But I, do, I really do believe dads can save the country. So let's talk about what the project entails. I mean, you mentioned a channel. Uh, what are the different pieces of this? This is one of the fundamental reasons why we started Emergent Order Foundation as its own dedicated nonprofit. You know, Emergent Order LLC evolved to really be a kind of creative services shop for the liberty movement. And I'm very proud of the work we've done with partners like AEI and Independent Institute and State Policy Network and others. But I, I believe there's a chance for us to make even more impact and more sustained impact by creating channels that engage the audience on an ongoing basis. So we know from advertising and sales that people need six, seven, eight touch points before they feel comfortable making a decision or, or persuaded to change a, a behavior. And yet we do these ad campaigns and hope that people will change their mind in one shot. What we're doing with Dad Saves America, and what we're do, and which is really the, the first of what will be many initiatives like it at Emergent Order Foundation, is creating a channel. This is going to be a YouTube channel primarily, but it'll also be a brand that extends to its own website and social channels elsewhere. But YouTube's going to be our primary focus. We are going to be producing weekly and hopefully even potentially daily by the time we're really running and our engines are full on full throttle for dads, for wannabe dads, for the people that care about dads, um, which includes moms and wives and kids. Um, but primarily for dads, so that they understand they can have a repeatable, relatable, reliable source of inspiration and motivation. We hear a lot about how it's becoming harder for people to make friends, uh, and then that seems to be particularly true among men, and then just amongst the difference between moms and dads. My wife has a text chain with like 50 texts a day between two other moms. Uh, does a call every other week with a couple other moms, Does has Facebook groups. I don't have any of that. I mean, I'll have some conversations here and there. How do you get dads, how do you get people like me to actually engage with this stuff? Well, I think that one of the ways we're going to be doing that is to meet dads and meet our audience where they are. So that's that's about talking about the subjects that we actually care about and the principal subject, the one that's at the center of our bullseye, is how to raise your kids from an educational perspective, what to do about your kid's school. Um, you know, every parent cares about their kid's education. And I think that that's, you know, especially in the aftermath of, of COVID lockdowns and school closures and treating kids like chits to be played in a game of um, – negotiation with teachers union uh, you know i think there's an opportunity here to engage dads about about education about what it is and about how to make active choices around education so that's one example of we have to meet them where they are and talk about and tell stories around the issues that the audience actually cares about it, ha it has to be about the audience we're, we're finalizing audience research to help help guide our editorial strategy around that. So there'll be more to talk about in the months to come on that front. But just as far as meeting them where they are, plus the, my passion, uh, education is going to be a huge part. Do you feel that dads need almost social permission to engage in these areas that 
TV shows and culture for so long have said that, you know, oh, the mom will do that. You know, it's funny. When, uh, this, in, lo- in a lot of ways, this is a return to work I had done when I was a creative director at Spike TV. Uh, we were we were we were branded as a network for guys. The first network for men was our original tagline, and um, and I ran a campaign called True Dads that was about encouraging fathers and our viewers to take an active role in their kids' lives. And I think that in a effort to not be exclusionary, I, I think that's the best way you could put it. People in our culture. And tastemakers in our culture have bent over backwards to minimize the importance of dad. You know, our our culture has sort of forgotten what dad brings to the table. And so we're left with um, either hashtag cancel Father's Day or if you go on, you know, for the listeners out there, I recommend you Google right now. Happy Father's Day, mother. And look at how many cards exist saying that phrase, Happy Father's Day, Mother. Might be good intentions, but what a weird message to send to our kids and to our culture. So what does success look like with this project? How do you know how do you know you've changed the culture in the way you want? Well, I think that the first place where we want to see success is in building an active and engaged community of audience who tell us that they're getting value out of what we're doing. And that can come in many different ways. It can come qualitatively, you know, people reaching out to us and saying, thank you for doing this. Um, I'm, I'm getting a lot out of this. That video you produced about, you know, what to do when your kid is struggling in school helped me in a really difficult moment. Um, so that's really great. There's the sheer numbers. How big of a fan base, how big of an audience can we grow over time? Um, but if you go down to the end of the road, like what does success and impact look like? For me, I want a community that embraces a radical alternative approach to raising their kids, and especially around several areas. The number one for me is alternative education. I want our audience to embrace yanking their kids from traditional school. It's great that more and more Americans are waking up to the fact that the school system does not have their kids' interest in mind. It is a jobs program. It is an institution in the most strangling sense of the word. It is a kind of prison. But it, you have to take action. You have to prioritize it. You have to sit down with your family budget and say, this matters enough that I'm going to, together with my wife, make it a priority. And for me, that says get your kids out of public school and pay real close attention to your private schools because I, I had some really bad experiences with ideological weirdo stuff being pushed on my son at private school. So it's private school is not necessarily a safe harbor. You have to be really engaged. So to me, that's the number one impact. Do we build an audience and a community who sees being a dad as the most heroic thing they can do to save the country and the future? Not simply something that they do that's in their private life and it's a private thing, but that it's something that when they go to a dinner party and someone says, what do you do? The first thing you say is, I'm a dad. That's great. John Popola, Emergent Order Foundation. We're excited to see how this project continues to evolve. Thanks for your time. Thanks a lot. You can uh, check it out at uh, dadsavesamerica.com. Right now, that is like literally a placeholder, so you're going to get there first. Uh, the YouTube channel is also called Dad Saves America. Peter, thank you so much for having me on. 
as I mentioned at the outset, all three groups have been steadily moving forward and growing since I talked with these leaders in October of 2021. So a few updates. Communio is currently on pace to double the number of churches it serves this year over 2021, up to 160 churches. That's come about in a couple ways. One is a major partnership with the Kansas City Archdiocese that'll support 20 parishes there. Communio is also launching its national strategy to save the family, which focuses on growing church partnerships in top 40 metro areas. JP also tells me that Communio has launched a micro-targeting tool called Communio Insights. This allows Communio to do full-channel marketing and micro-targeting on behalf of churches and communities. This is big-tech thinking applied to bedrock ideas. John Popola's Dad Saves America initiative also continues to leverage technology to reach a rapidly growing audience. Dad Saves America now has more than 5,000 YouTube subscribers and is fast approaching 1 million views, still in its early days. The channel continues to put out fresh content and explore new ways to get that content out. Darcy Olson of Gen Justice shared with me that as of 2022, Gen Justice's reforms are affecting more than 480,000 kids in 13 states. It also continues to grow its pro bono legal services, which has expanded to include helping older teens. Darcy notes that this is important because it can help these teens with all sorts of things and open doors to education, employment, joining the armed services, or even just getting a driver's license. I wish we could say the need for what Gen Justice does was no longer there, but as long as it is, I am glad Darcy and her team are on the case. And since we recorded this episode, Donors Trust ended its biggest year ever, and through the first half of this year has continued to see growth and energy from the donor community. And if we can be of service to your philanthropy, please call us. We'd love to be helpful. Or visit our website, donorstrust.org. Well, I hope you came away with a new idea or two from the discussion today, whether it was your first time hearing this episode or not. If it was helpful, please subscribe in your favorite podcast player so you can stay current on our upcoming episodes, each giving you new ideas for giving and new reasons to be hopeful. I look forward to bringing you all new episodes starting in August. Until then, thank you for listening. Let's talk more soon. Mm-hmm.